This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, we have a special and unusual guest on the podcast, somebody I'm pretty confident that most of you have never heard of. His name is Nick Murray. He is an author and consultant to the advisory industry. He's often been called an advisor's advisor. He's written 11 books, probably the most famous of which to the professional is Behavioral Investment Counseling. Uh, Some of the other books he's written have titles like Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. He is an extremely insightful person who has been working in the financial services industry for nearly half a century. He began his career early on, you'll hear, uh, at a number of well-known brokerage firms and found himself more and more offering advice to other advisors and brokers rather to specific individual clients. And that evolved, as he discusses, some 30 plus years ago into a full-time career working as an advisor to advisors. He has a very substantial and loyal following amongst a certain group of people in the financial industry. He preaches some very common sense things that are a little counterintuitive. You might be surprised to learn how important stock picking and market timing is to long-term returns. Uh, The answer is going to rock you back on your heels. All those things matter much, much less than your own behavior as an investor and your own behavior as a uh, financial advisor or broker. One of the things I find really fascinating about Nick Murray is that the average person has no idea who this guy is. In fact, I would go so far as to say the average investor has no idea that there is an industry that exists helping advisors do their job. And I don't just mean software and various mutual fund managers and product creators, but someone who actually facilitates the process of the ideal way, the optimal way for financial advisors to interact with their clients. A lot of this is kind of inside baseball. I suspect we're going to have a lot of people in the financial services industry finding about out about this and listening to it. He speaks all over the country, probably gives 50-plus speeches a year and commands a, a, a high um, speaking fee because he is in such demand. Uh, for those of you who want to know a little more about how the financial services industry works or those of you who are just interested in the work uh, that he does, here is Nick Murray. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Nick Murray. You may not know who he is, but if you're in the financial services industry, you probably should. He is known as the Advisors Advisors, one of the industry's premier resources for registered investment advisors and others. He is the author of 11 books for financial services professional. Most famously, Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, which has been described as the most successful privately published book of the last 15 years. In 2007, Nick was the recipient of the Malcolm S. Forbes Public Awareness Award for Excellence in Advancing Financial Understanding. 
Nick, welcome to Bloomberg. It's very nice to be here. I, I would point out that I've never claimed that Simple Wealth was anything but one of the most successful privately published books of the last 15 years. We don't want to start hyperbole this early in the- Okay, we'll save it for the latter section. There you go. Hyperbole in, in segment five. All right. All right, so a little bit about your background. You went to Columbia. Uh, you uh, were yes, for years and majors. years I went to Columbia. <laughs> seven years of college wasted, Just you jokingly like said. Just like says, seven years of college down the drain, um, but always not lost because my major was economics. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the mid-1960s, they were teaching Keynesian economics. They still do. Which I would have had to go back and relearn all over again anyway. So it wasn't, as we say, a total loss. Okay, so- so you come out of school in 1967, you go to E.F. Hutton, and then you're at Shearson, ultimately ending up at Bear Stearns before yes. saying to yourself, I'm in demand by advisors more so than anything else. Maybe that's the sort of uh, area I should focus my attention on. How, how did that transition it was take kind place? Of a, it was kind of a half step. In 1991, um, about 25 years ago, you said. About saying. 25 years ago, now that you mention it, and now that you mention it, in August, I published a book called um, Serious Money, The Art of Marketing Mutual Funds, mm -hmm. um, because there was no other book on the subject. And, you know, started to get a lot of requests to, to come to firms other than Bear Stearns and talk about this. And I, it was just a collision course, and so I kind of took myself off, was a, an independent advisor, um, and also doing this, whatever it is that I do now. And then at the end of the decade, at the turn of the century, I kind of said- um, Both you, feet, you, you, right? Yeah, in. you better do one or the other. So let me ask you a question. I, I've heard other people ask this, and I actually rarely ask this question. But for someone like yourself, it's a fascinating way to frame this. When people ask you, what do you do? You know, it's typical cocktail party chatter. How, how do you answer that question? I say that I'm an advisor to other financial advisors, that I was for a quarter of a century or more a financial advisor. And now that I consult and, and speak and write to other financial advisors. And if they don't go to completely to sleep while well, I'm still saying that, I just kind of walk away. That's, um, I find myself in an odd situation when people ask me, what do I do? The answer is always, well, what day? You, you, I, it's not like I have a nine to five. I can't just say I'm an accountant or a doctor. It's much more complicated. And once you see that glaze over the eyes, yeah. it's like, all right, I I, I think I'm I'm boring them to death. My attitude is that's what you get for asking me. <laughs> that's right. So so from the financial services industry as an advisor to actually helping advisors help their own clients, uh, you know what was the motivational drive of that? How how did that come about? That was it strictly due to demand from advisors? Yeah. What what makes you say you know I have a bunch of clients and I like them. But these other advisors, they're, they're kicking my door down. How, how do you make that transition? Well, I, first of all, a lot of it's just getting older and, and making choices. I mean, it's just, you know, there, come, there came a point where I didn't think that I could do both 
with distinction. You, you couldn't be an advisor to clients and an advisor to advisors. And traveling all over the country and writing and, and doing all this other stuff. You, you speak frequently. How many events do you speak at a year? I, I guess it's running around four dozen. All right. So almost weekly, you're on the road somewhere. It, 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 it bunches, but yes, it averages out to maybe and, once a week. And you have uh, about 3,300 subscribers I to do. your newsletter. And what yeah. I want to point out about your newsletter, unlike just about every other newsletter I've ever seen, yours is described as having zero forecasts. Explain that. Um, it, it's funny. Nobody's ever said that. I don't know anything about other newsletters, and nobody's ever said that to me before. But I'll I'll take you at your word. I um, I don't know how anybody who's a, a, a counselor to advisors who are trying to get their clients to think and act long term would sully himself. With a, with a forecast of any kind. I think it just, A, I'm not qualified to forecast. This doesn't bother me because no one else is either. That was my next question. But, is, yeah. So you don't think that the gold is going to 5,000 this year? Is that what you're... Yeah. <laughs> it, at some point it is. Some point. But yeah. uh, is that February? Is that November? When, when yeah, are we going to sure. see... Because that's my favorite forecast. I've, yeah. I've seen that for now for 10 years. Gold goes up, gold goes down. The forecast never changes. My favorite forecast is Dow 5000, which you see about every 90 days from someone or other. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick Murray. He is the advisor to advisors. And one of the things that I really like about um, your various writings, especially uh, your regular newsletter, is your emphasis on outperformance and why we obsessively focus on it to our detriment. Describe that if you would. Well, it covers a lot of ground. I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by outperformance. If you mean alpha, sure. my attitude is forget it. The, the, the individual investor struggling with everything else he's got to struggle in his life and, and trying to make sense out of his long-term investments the, the best way and the easiest way and the most fatal way that he can blow himself up and will blow himself up is chasing alpha, is, is mistaking outperformance for a financial goal, which it's not. The, the, the great task of the individual investment advisor to me, and, and particularly the holistic financial planner, is keeping everybody on their long-term plan. And I think you can do one or the other. You can sort of follow a plan or you can chase performance. But I don't think you can do both at the same time. One or the other will, will take you over. And if alpha takes you over as opposed to outcomes, mm -hmm. I think you're dead in the marketplace. So I have a few quotes of yours that I want to throw at you and, and have you um, respond to. One of which was... Investor behavior is far more important a determinant to someone's returns than either stock picking or market timing. Explain that. I don't know that I ever said that. Um, okay, then. It, no, no, but here's what, I, what I've said is, is even stronger than that. Okay. Which is, word for word, the dominant determinant of long-term real-life 
financial outcomes is not investment performance, it's investor behavior. So so let let's explore that a little bit. So the total returns that a person is getting from their portfolio matters less than what they do in response to various inputs. Is that a fair way to sure. describe that? How how, if at all, they respond inappropriately to market stimuli. So give us a few examples of inappropriate responses. You have 90% of your portfolio in dot-com in 1999. Okay. You and we ni- saw plenty of that. And That's- we saw plenty of that. And you have 90% of your portfolio in gold and cash in the spring of 2009. And we, we certainly saw a lot of people panicking out of the market in March 09. It was ever thus. And and that's pretty much human behavior. There's not a whole lot of... Uh, that's that's fairly uh, perennial or, or everlasting. That's the nature of how people react, isn't it? That's why the financial advisor was sent into the world by God, because it is a- essential to human nature. The, the, the financial advisor doesn't manage money, he manages people. Mm-hmm. And again, this is an either-or choice. You, you, every advisor has to comes to that fork in the road, I think. And the good ones go down the road of, of managing investor behavior. And sort of letting the, the portfolio, as, as long as it's allocated to the right stuff in the long run, leaving the portfolio alone. I'm, I'm a firm believer, this is a slightly different point, but it seems to want to come up. I'm a firm believer that the more often you change the portfolio, for whatever reason, the lower your return will go. The turnover is absolutely correlated negatively to, to return. The, the way I heard that some years ago was, don't just do something, sit there. Very much so. I think it was Louis Rukeyser's last words. So... There is, um, uh, you've written many books, one of which I have right here called Behavioral Investment Counseling. Yes. And there is, there is a uh, section in it that has some information that I had to double check because it was so outrageous. When you first read it, you, you have to say, let me make sure this is true. So I'm going to read this data. Over 20 years, the average large cap equity mutual funds, and this is as of 07. So it's before the crisis and before the recovery. The average large cap mutual equity mutual fund, according to Lipper Analytics, has returned 10.81%. But the average investor in those funds have received only 4.48% of those. In other words, they're retaining less than half of the gains of the funds they own. How is it possible to underperform? Your own investments by buying them and selling them at the wrong times. And how? how by do the people way, do th- that? those data which which you're quoting from the book, mm-hmm. that study's done every year, uh-huh. and every year it comes out the same. Th- the, there's been no change no. post crisis, post recovery. No. By the way, the second number is from Dalbar, which actually Dalbar at- does the study, and that's my point. That if you read the twenty annual Dalbar studies. They basically cluster around the same conclusion, which is that the average investor blows about half the return of either the market or the average fund. And that's not through picking this fund over that fund. It's through their own behavior. Well, it's po- switching funds. Certainly. Switching from here to there. So oh, they sell absolutely. something at the wrong time 
and swap into something at the wrong time. Well, well, sure, because what they do, what, what I think everybody is inclined to do, is switch out of something that's gone cold into something that appears to be hot. And, and I, again, I think that's a very fundamental human behavior. And if you stop for 10 seconds, you realize that what they're doing again and again and again is selling low to buy high, which I read somewhere is about the opposite of what you're supposed to do. I think I've seen that as well. And it, it just, it, it can have no other outcome. So mean reversion, not really something that the average investor is thinking about. In other words, buying something that's dipped and selling something that's rallied they're doing the opposite. They're left to their own devices that they're, they're doing the opposite, which is why, in my experience, almost all of the great advisors are rebalancing annually. A, they're coming back to the original plan, mm-hmm. but in the act of rebalancing, what you're doing is kicking out stuff that shot out the lights and redeploying it into stuff that's just waiting to go instead of the opposite, which is what everybody does if you leave them to their own devices. And, and the research shows that's the closest thing to a free lunch on Wall Street. There's no risk, no cost, and you're actually adding a few basis points of performance over total, the long time. Total no-brainer. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick Murray. He is the author of 11 books on investing and how advisors should interact with clients. Let's talk a little bit about that. So, so you began in 1967 what was the role of the advisor back then? Was that a very different era, or was it just the same thing? It with- was the, the it was the Neanderthal era. It was it was stock picking. Still, it was just uh, in 1967, which was very very close to, as you know, the top of the great post World War II bull market. And, right. And- Twenty years, Nifty Fifty. Everybody was all excited, and then. Well, 67 had really become a garbage market, mm-hmm. uh, really become a garbage market. And it was, it was really the first great outbreak of mass uh, performance mania since the 20s. And no one had an adult memory of that. And no one knew what it was about. And the market had been going up for, you Your know, 22 adult. years. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it was... Uh, it it was allegedly a stock picker's market. It was all about beating the market by individual stock selection. Heaven help us. And and around the same time, you know, you stop and think back to it. Yeah, you had these short little recessions and these short little market corrections in the fifties and early sixties. But overall, the long term returns for most of people's adult life at that point had been a one way trade, hadn't it? Been? Totally. And and so that was uh, Dow kissed a thousand in 1966. It did, and it wasn't over it on a permanent basis again until 1982. That is exactly correct. So so how does somebody how does an advisor counsel clients three four five years into that? It looks like the market is never going up again. Well, I I hope that a um, an advisor is counseling clients to be buying with both hands because mm-hmm. that's when that's when you're supposed to. Now, it, 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 is it what a lot of people do? I don't think it is. But the narrow answer to the narrow question: what should a what should an advisor be counseling people in a period like that? Is 
is A, continue to work your plan. B, you're getting some kind of a big intermediate to longer term sale. You'll never see these prices again. You had to know, uh, you know, 1973, 74, when the, when the, the PE was eight, or right. something, because the bonds were 20. 12, 15, yeah. 17% risk-free. Exactly. And the market had just fallen 56%. Yes. From, so so a let whole, me- A whole bunch. So you said that was a narrow question. Let me ask this in a more general, broad set question. What makes a successful financial advisor? Somebody who can make a plan for his clients empathetically, bravely, uh, uh, smartly, and keep them on it, and, regardless and of the fads or fears of the moment. Regardless of the fads or fears of the moment. Yes, sir. This brings us back to the behavioral issue. Totally. How significant is what an advisor does in terms of managing the poor impulses and emotional instincts of, of the average investor? Again, that's what I think he was sent into the world to do. So now let's let me ask you a, a somewhat different question about that. What's the ideal client like? So you just described what the role of the advisor is. What's the role of the client in all this? The role of the client is to come to an advisor realizing that he cannot make for himself a lifetime, much less multi-generational investment plan, much less financial plan, and find an advisor that he can trust and sit down with that advisor and make that plan and ask the advisor to keep him on it even when he doesn't want to stay on it. That's what the ideal client is. It's somebody who, I'm not going to tell my lawyer how to defend me. I'm not going to tell my uh, accountant uh, how to do my taxes. And I'm sure not going to tell my doctor what to prescribe. On what theory, if you think that's rational, does someone go to an investment advisor, much less a financial planner, and say, this is what I want to do? You go to a planner because you don't know what you want to do, or you suspect that what you want to do is wrong because you've tried it a bunch of times and it hasn't worked. So that's, to me, the ideal client is the one who treats his financial planner the way he does his attorney and his accountant and his doctor. He goes and says, as nearly as I can tell, this is my problem. Tell me how to fix it. That makes plenty of sense. What about the client who goes to an advisor and says, I just saw this guy on TV and here's what he said. How should that be handled? If you think he's right, go do what he said. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nick Murray. He is the advisor to advisors and has spent the better part of his adult lifetime trying to teach advisors the proper way of interacting with their clients. And just before the break, we were discussing a, a very typical error that advisors make, which is placating clients when they're engaging in bad behavior. Uh, discuss what, what the problem is with that. Well, the problem is that you're taking money from people in exchange for enabling them to do things that you know that are wrong. A, I think that's immoral. B, I don't know how you look at yourself in the mirror. 
And C, all you're doing is postponing the inevitable. If you're helping people do the bad things that they want to do, you're, you're, that's going to be a train wreck. Eventually. And, and when it is a train wreck, they'll turn around and blame you. I've seen it happen any number of times where, where advisors you know, kept trying to get the client on the, on the straight and narrow said, okay, I'll let him do this, I'll let him buy gold, I'll let him go to cash, this, that, and the other thing, because he saw the only alternative as losing the account, which he didn't realize what, was what he really wanted. And, and when the client hit the wall, he turned around and sued the guy, sued the advisor. So, so let's back up, and I know you're talking metaphorically and not any specific account, but you're a big adv- uh, advocate of where there's not a good fit between a client and an advisor to terminate that relationship or fire the client. I'm I'm not actually. I'm I'm a big fan of not starting the relationship because you know in the first 20 minutes. So you what, should never get I don't think an advisor in a perfect world and I know this is not a perfect world, but I don't think that the advisor should ever get to the point where he's got to fire a guy because he knows. He knew going in he knew, he knew going in, the, in, this is a bad fit. Absolutely, in the first 20 minutes. So what happens in the real world where you think you're simpatico, you're, you're, you know, especially if you're not promoting yourself as a, look, I'm not a stock picker, I'm not a market timer, I'm a long-term uh, asset allocator, even with the best of intentions and where you think there's a fit, when you're six or seven years into a long-term bull market and people forget how they their buddies panicked out in the in the bottom you know you look at their 10-year returns they're doing much much better than the guy who's chasing returns at the top and panicking out at the bottom and now this guy discovers the next great thing gold nanotechnology netflix facebook you you name it yeah whatever it is how how do you deal with the client who suddenly says hey listen i'd like to juice my returns my neighbor told me that he bought the Facebook IPO and it's now almost 100. Why didn't you get me the Facebook IPO? That's a real-world behavior. It's a very real-world behavior. So what's how should that be handled? How should that be dealt with? I don't do individual stocks. I have no understanding of Facebook's business model. Uh, in my own defense, I don't think Warren Buffett does either, but I don't want <laughs> to do you know, um, uh, anything by association. This is not a part of our plan. This is not something that I would feel competent to advise you on. I'm not going to do that. If you, if you want to take some money um, that is not essential to your long-term plan and play with it, by all means, you know, be encouraged to do that elsewhere. So you're a fan of the... Um an account that acts as an emotional release so they don't mess up their long-term money, but here's a small amount of money that if you lose it, it's it's who cares. If that's the only way that you can keep them from gumming up the long-term plan, sure. And what about people who are just hell-bent on self-destruction? Terminate that relationship sure. and say, hey, again, I- Again, I think that if you've been in the business for any length of time and you're honest with yourself, and you're not just looking at and saying, boy, this is a really big account and I hope I get it and I'll say whatever I have to say to get it. If you're honest with yourself, 
uh, you know in the first 20 minutes. You, people who are seriously bent on self-destruction confess that to you without realizing they're doing it very, very early in the game, long before you're, you're deep into the weeds. We, we have a couple of uh, CFPs in our office, and they have a list of knockout indicators. And it's, you Good know, for them. Good when, for them. when we start, when people start asking questions about sharp ratios and things mm -hmm. like that, we know, hey, you really want a hedge fund. You're not looking for a long-term financial plan. You want a whole lot more juice, and, and that's not what we do. We're, we're really boring. You want, you want a whole lot more cocktail party chatter. And uh, it's amazing yeah. how many of those sort of knockout indicators pop up. And you're absolutely right. It's in the first 10 minutes of the conversation. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about risk and reward, all right? Because risk is something that a lot of people have a tendency to think about, sometimes incorrectly. Um, how should retail investors think about risk? They should define it, first of all. Mm -hmm. And retail investors can't. The retail investor, and this is a huge part of his, his problem and his desperate need for a, a, an advisor, the, the individual investor cannot distinguish between risk and volatility. I was going to say, everybody uses volatility as a proxy, but volatility really is not risk. Volatility has nothing to do with risk. Risk is the chance of a permanent loss of capital. Volatility is unpredictability, both high and low, around a long-term trend line. One thing with the other got absolutely nothing to do. And this is far out breaking news for the American individual investor. Why does anybody get out at the bottom of the market? Because he looks at a temporary decline, because they're all temporary declines, and he says, I have lost X percent of my money. In fact, he has not lost anything unless and until he sells. This is a distinction that, in my experience, people cannot make without an advisor basically standing athwart their portfolio going, stop. Don't do that. We're speaking with Nick Murray. He is the author of 11 different books on finance and an advisor to the advisor community. So let's go over some of the uh, worst mistakes that investors make. You hinted at a few of them. They end up getting enamored by things like IPOs. They, they get aggressive at the top. They panic at the bottom. Really, a lot of this just comes down to emotions, doesn't it? Sure. It all comes down to emotions. They give in to emotions. They get excited. They get enthusiastic. Or they uh, get terrified. Um, or they get greedy. So let's talk a little bit about greed. What, what about private equity and venture investing and hedge funds? They sound so sexy and sophisticated. Uh, we've been anecdotally hearing more and more questions about that from different people. What, what are your thoughts on, on those areas of investment? I haven't really studied those areas, but if you find one that has outperformed mainstream equities over the long term, with anything remotely like the volatility of mainstream equities, I'll be interested to learn about it. I haven't found one yet. Um, the, the things that you're talking about basically are very subject, in my experience, to vogues. Absolutely. And so, you know, you would, you would have, you would go into the crash 
of 2007, 2009, with maybe $200 million, $250 million in total in, in commodity futures funds. And you would come out of the crash with $2.5 billion because momentarily that stuff had held up better than mainstream equities. So what did everybody do? They took all of their money out of mainstream equities somewhere near the bottom and invested it in whatever you call these things, futures, managed futures. Managed yep. futures. I don't even know the terminology. At, at, at a time when there was so much money coming into these things that they could not possibly perform. And, and it was ever thus. So I, you know, I don't manage money today, but if somebody came to me and said, I, I want to put a third of my money in managed futures and, and private equity and all this other stuff that you, that you mentioned, I would say, these are not areas that I know anything about. They're not areas that I'm interested in knowing anything about. Deep down, without adopting the, the, you know, the burden of proof, I suggest to you that I have never seen evidence that these things consistently outperform mainstream equities over the long term, but it is your money and you're the client and you should go find somebody who is good at, or that you think is good at counseling you in, in these areas because I will never be. We've been speaking with Nick Murray. He is the author of 11 separate books on investing and well-known as an advisor to advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue our conversation. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can see Nick Murray's writings and subscribe to his newsletters at either nickmurray.com or nickmurraynewsletters.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. Our special guest today, Nick Murray, who this is a little inside baseball. If you're a registered investment advisor or if you work uh, in asset management, you probably have heard the name Nick Murray. Uh, for, for you civilians out there, who may not know the name, um, he is the person who is essentially helping advisors help you and has a, a legendary history and a legendary uh, following uh, amongst the advisor community. And if I haven't said this previously, Nick, thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure um, inviting you, and, and I've been reading you for a long time, and I'm certainly familiar um, with a number of your books, some of which I actually brought with me for you to sign. I'll be happy to do that. Thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you, so we have no time constraints here, so don't feel like you have to give me short broadcast answers. Okay. Um, that's the whole beauty of this is that we can sort of wax eloquent as long, as long as you like. Um, before we were talking a little bit about risk and some of the questions I didn't get to, uh, but we hinted at, uh, so so the flip side of risk is reward. What is it about reward that makes investors lose their mind? How is it that, you know, in the midst of a downturn, you see one type of investor behavior, and then after a market has run up for a couple of years, 
you start to see another type of investor behavior. I don't know how to answer that other than by copping out to human nature. That's not a cop out. That's it's it's permanent. It's forever. It's you know one of my favorite investing books. This this will go right to your point. Is um, how I trade stocks and bonds it was written in 1924 by uh, Wyckoff is his name. And if you went through this book and tr substituted for what he says railroads, you put in airlines, and when he says telephone and telegraph you put internet, I defy anybody to tell the difference between that book written almost a century ago, Richard Wyckoff's book, and a book written a year ago. You, they're almost identical. Well, they'd have to be because human nature is immutable. If you, um, My favorite book about the 1920s and the crash intellectually is Maury Klein's Rainbow's End. Mm-hmm. And one of the great beauties of that book is that it came out in 2001, halfway down the great uh, implosion of dot-com. Mm -hmm. And to pick up that book and read about the mania and then the complete collapse at a moment when you were living through a mania and a complete collapse, uh, all you could do uh, reading it was to say, I'm watching that movie all over again. It's funny. I should pick this book up. It, it, it's a it's a cliche, but it's true. The one thing we learn from history is that nobody learns anything from history. And that, in my opinion, is why God sent the Behavioral Investment Counselor into the world. So more important than performance, more important than stock picking, having someone facilitate your emotional well-being or prevent you from doing the things that we know people tend to do. Well, not as an abstraction, but in service to a plan. So describe that a little bit because you've you've referenced it. In my mind, I know what a plan is, but perhaps someone listening is not that clued into what you mean by a financial plan. Well, I'm not sure that I mean anything specific by it, but what I mean is that you're you're 52 years old and your wife is 52 years old and suddenly you realize you have not saved enough for retirement. Mm -hmm. And you and suddenly you realize that you have said all along, the two of you, to each other, 62 and out. Right. And so one day, you know, you go to sleep one night thinking about the Mercedes and the trip to Europe. And you wake up the next morning saying, we have less than 10 years to go. And that's that's kind of a jolt. For a lot of people, and, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm sure you know, a lot of people show up in advisors' offices at the point where they got that jolt. Now, what's, what's going to be the next thing that happens? The advisor is going to say, okay, 10 years from now, what is the sum of capital that will produce at, at some reasonable withdrawal rate that will produce what you need to live on? Uh, for, the rest for, of your life. for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And out of that, you would assume, comes a written, date-specific, dollar-specific retirement accumulation plan. And out of that comes an asset allocation model. What rate of return will it take to get you from where we are now to that amount of money at age 62? When we know that rate of return, we have backed into an asset allocation model, haven't we? If it's nine, welcome to the wonderful world of being an equity investor. 
because there's no other there's no other known way to get there um, consistently. So now we get up from that conversation, and we have a we have a goal. We have presumably a plan for reaching that goal. The folks are going to have to put in n number of dollars every one of the 120 months from age 52 to age 62, and they're going to have to realize a rate of return of Y on that. That's a plan. Mm -hmm. Now, what are we asking the plan to do? I don't think we're asking the, I wouldn't be asking the plan to do anything but produce um, long-term trend line returns. That's all. But let's make sure that we don't foul those up. Let's make sure that during those 120 months when the market goes down 30%, which it's going to do once or twice, right? isn't it, th- that we don't panic out and go to cash or gold coins or something insane like that. And, and the once during the 10 years um, that, the, that the S&P 500 suddenly goes from you know, 2,000 to 5,000 because of nanotechnology, that we don't junk the plan and take 80% of the assets and throw them at, at, at nanotechnology. That's what, I'm, that's what I mean by not, not managing behavior in the abstract, but managing it in service to the plan. The plan doesn't, the, the plan doesn't want you to do that stuff. So let me ask you about two different types of clients. And again, some of this is anecdotal, but I'm sure... What I'm about to tell you isn't uh, anything radically diff- different from what other people have experienced. One is the client that has a substantial pile of wealth, but they're afraid that they're going to outlive their money. Right? You know, and you could show them, look, there's only three inputs. What you start with, how much you contribute, how much time you have, and we're assuming a reasonable rate of return. We're not assuming 20%. We're not assuming 2%. Here's a mixed portfolio. What do you say to people who, uh, what do you say to either investors or advisors where there is a reasonable sum of wealth to begin with, where people continue to be concerned? They have a little post traumatic stress disorder from the crisis, from the 0809 crash. They're afraid that something's going to happen that's going to interfere with their ability to, to retire on a timely basis, or they're not going to be able to, they're going to run out of money um, and outlive it. Well, that's two different things. Okay, so let's take the outlive the money first, because I seem to be yes. hearing a lot of that lately. Uh, well, the outlive the money is actually the big risk, mm-hmm. and it's and it's the silent risk, I think, because people don't focus on it. People say, if I had X number of dollars at retirement, and I could withdraw from that Y number of dollars in retirement, I would be fine. And of course, they wouldn't. Because modern two-person retirement is now 30 years long, and at trendline inflation, the cost of living goes up two and a half times. That's the thing. That's the big risk. Mm -hmm. Um, People going off the reservation, okay, that's always a risk in fads and fears. We always have to live with that. But I think year in and year out, decade in and decade out, people have to be looking at the at modern retirement as essentially a problem of purchasing power. And I think most people still look at it essentially as a problem of principle. So let's, let's talk about that because that's a fascinating um, descriptor. We currently live in a low inflation environment. 
history tells us that this is somewhat temporary. Uh, how significant is retaining purchase power, purchasing power 10, 20, 30 years into the future, especially as lifespans just keep getting longer and longer and longer? Well, as I say, it's the issue. Most important issue for a oh, financial plan. Well, for a retirement plan, have but, By the way, how often do you ever hear anybody in the news media or television news say your biggest threat is inflation 25 years from now because you're going to outlive your money? Never. That, Never. That's, again, I mean, I keep coming back to this, but that's why God sent the <laughs> behavioral investment counselor into the world because no one will say the truth. Well, how many times is, is somebody going to turn on CNBC to hear somebody say, you know, the big problem is not loss of principle, it's erosion of purchasing power. The ninth time that media say the truth, people will, will no longer turn on the media. They'll, they'll either get it or they won't want to hear it anymore. And that's why you can never get truth from media. You can only get news. You say, can, say that again. Let's say that. You can never get truth from media because people are either bored with it or don't believe it. it no, no. They, they either get bored with it or they get it. They get it and it's old news at that point. Yeah. yeah. People say, okay, I got this now. I've just heard this for the ninth time. It's starting to sound familiar to me. I'm going to go to my financial planner and plan out a retirement during which my cost of living goes up two and a half times and make awful, awful sure that I own things whose income is going up at at least that rate. And honey, don't forget to turn off the television set before we get in the car to go to the financial planner. This is what media cannot abide. It can't allow it. And so it cannot tell the great truths. It's, it's focused on capturing eyeballs, not Winning hearts and minds, so to speak. Headlines, not history. Headlines, not history. I, I really like that. It's a, an era of distraction that we live in. There's a never-ending stream of things. We mentioned Facebook earlier, but between Facebook and Twitter and a million channels and everything else, what is the net impact of, of all of these various streams of of snippets of news and data and information. Well, I think inside the media themselves, it's the, the, the effect is that they go crazier and crazier and crazier trying to capture eyeballs. They, th there's no thought anymore. There's just trying to flag you down. Mm -hmm. and, in the, and, and of course, in the, the, the poor American household, what's going on is they're getting submerged in noise. They're getting completely inundated with noise. And there's so much noise that you can't really analyze anything anymore or think about anything anymore. And what the normal mind does is it goes to data mining. It takes out of the noise what it wanted to hear all along. Selective perception, yeah, confirmation sure. bias. Oh, well, I kind of like that. I'm going to grab onto it. That to me is the big, big outcome of the, the tsunami of noise. So- you, we have a retirement system in the United States. We don't have very much left in terms of pension funds. We're not like Europe with a guaranteed retirement. 
<laughs> that leaves people with an IRA, uh, uh, some sort of 401k if if they're fortunate enough to have their company offer that, and then whatever other savings uh, they can do. What are your thoughts on things like 401ks, IRAs, and tax-deferred retirement accounts? Well, I, my bias is to think that you should fund any protected retirement fund that you can, even though you're giving up capital gains treatment on the other end for the compounding effect. Sure. Um, and, and there are people who, who agree with that and people who don't, I guess. Um, net, net, if you're putting money in pre-tax, aren't you essentially leaving yourself that much more money to invest well, I, I, I think you are. Am I, I'm not oversimplifying that one. I don't think it. so. All right. And then I had a reader who, when, when they said, oh, you're interviewing Nick Murray? Ask him what he thinks about annuities. And so I'll ask you, what do you think about annuities? You have to refine the question. You okay. have to narrow the question. What do you think about annuities for a person who's already maxed out all their other tax-deferred accounts? It depends. Well, first of all, are we talking about fixed annuities or variable annuities? Uh, and if let's let's go know? let's let's go into that. Most of what I see advertised these days are variable annuities. But what do you think about fixed annuities? I think that they're cancer. The, the same as all bonds are cancer. All fixed income is cancer. It's death on the installment plan. It's the planned liquidation of purchasing power within your lifetime. The planned liquidation of purchasing power. All debt securities are the planned liquidation of purchasing power. So what's the role of fixed income into a broad asset allocation model? I didn't know that it had one. No. So you, you prefer a, an all equity portfolio for long-term investors? For long-term investors, yes. With, for money that has more than, and I, and I confess this is arbitrary, more than a five-year horizon for capital that has more than a five-year horizon. I cannot, a after some provision for an emergency fund, and mm -hmm. what I've always said for retirees was two years living expenses in a, in a money market fund. But, two, but, two full years. Well, that's yeah. A, that's, that's a substantial sum. How, how realistic is that for many people? Because we often see preached while you're working – six-month emergency funds, and getting people to, to do that is, is a challenge. Yes, it is. But look at it, and I, and I don't gainsay the challenge. Again, that's the job of the advisor. Mm -hmm. but, but if I'm going to get, if I'm going to try to get people to put substantially all of their retirement assets in equities, for the third, for the next thirty years, which I'm sure going to try to do, mm -hmm. I'm going to err on the side of caution with uh, maybe a bigger, you know, emergency fund than you need. Mm -hmm. Not for financial reasons, but for for emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. That you that you know that you could turn off your withdrawal for two whole years, and you're okay, and you're okay. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. Let's talk a little bit about some of the new technologies that are out there um, and some of the new investment fads. Knowing in advance what you're going to say about most of these, what are your thoughts on smart beta? I have no idea what it is. <laughs> I was expecting something along those lines. You know, beta that's smarter than regular beta. <laughs> that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing, I think, if it were... Uh... 
and if um, practicable. And, and then the next thing um, I know your answer to what What are your thoughts on robo advisors? Well, I think robo advisor is a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. It's no, it's an oxymoron. So either you're doing it yourself, or you have an advisor doing it for you, but having Software do it, doing it for you doesn't really accomplish much, does it? No, it doesn't because what it does is it, it asks you a lot of questions mm-hmm. which you have virtually no equipment to answer. What is your risk tolerance? Does anybody, any sentient being on any given moment know what his risk tolerance is? And is it any less labile than blood pressure? I mean, if the market <laughs> goes up for a week, his risk tolerance goes down if it goes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah, when you ask so, people their risk tolerance, what you're really asking is what has the market been doing for the past six months? Absolutely. So the, the, the machine asks people questions that they have only the vaguest idea how to answer. It takes those questions and, and hands back a canned portfolio mm-hmm. when the, the canned portfolio goes down 30% every five years, whether it needs to or not, uh, you know, the the client calls up the robot and says, open the pod bay doors, Hal. And Hal says, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. You know, I just, it, 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 I can't <laughs> hold the concept of robot and the concept of advisor in my mind at the same time. Something is one or, or, or the other. There, there was, and, and I think it's starting to abate because people like you have, have made these kinds of arguments, but there was a period of, I want to say about two or three quarters where the advisor community was genuinely distressed over the coming robots. And um, that seems to be starting to abate a little bit. What What's your read on that? Well, my selfish read on that is none of my subscribers mm-hmm. were were victims of that. I, if a if a real honest to goodness advisor was worried about a robot, he was really confessing that he had no value proposition at all. Let Let's talk about the value proposition because that's a question I have teed up a little further down the road, and this is something uh, for listeners that Nick has written about extensively. What is the value proposition of advisors who are essentially managing the behavior of their clients? So, so how would you define that? Well, the, the, any value proposition is the relationship between what somebody is giving you and what he's charging you for it, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there's, there's two variables in a value proposition. What you get and what it costs. That's right. And so- uh, an advisor has a positive value proposition when his client says, the advice I'm getting here is much more valuable to me and my family than what I am being charged for it. The converse is also true. At the moment that a, that a, a poor American client wakes up and says, you know what, I'm paying this guy all this money and I'm underperforming the S&P 500. Why am I doing that? At that moment, the advisor has lost his value proposition. It's gone negative. And why? Because the advisor hasn't made the points of what his value proposition, what is it that, a, that an advisor does that it is worth 
palpably an order of magnitude more than the 1% or so that we're charging in the industry for for asset management. To me, there are three things. One is planning, Mm -hmm. which we know they can't do on their own. One is long-term historical perspective, which we know they can't get out of the noise. And the third, and of course the monster for me, is behavioral coaching in periods of stress. If, If it isn't intuitive to somebody that the value of those three things must be far greater than a point, mm-hmm. then A, there's either something wrong with him or his advisor's a stumble bum because if you couldn't make those points clearly and compellingly and have a reasonable person sit there and say, I got it. I see why that's, in toto, those three things have got to be worth more and, and at critical inflection points much more than the point that you're charging me. Well, using the study that you mentioned yeah. in behavioral investment coaching, if people are underperforming their own investments yeah. by 6%, and you could by prevent half. them, by or half. let's call yeah. it half, and you could prevent them from doing that. For a point. You're five points ahead. That's compounded is an enormous thing. Compounded, it's off the page. That That's before we even start talking about by the way, here's an intelligent, rational asset allocation mm-hmm. that avoids the fads and the whatever's yep. in vogue and and basically keeps you on the straight and narrow. Yep. That that sounds like the value uh, proposition there. Well, I hope so. <laughs> so I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. You're heading uh, to parts south. It's yeah. not hot enough in New York today at 90 degrees and humid you want no, to go I can go to Louisville Kentucky and hit 94 uh, but so it's a, but it's a wet way. heat so it's not a <laughs> it's not that bad so let me let me go through some of my favorite questions that that I ask that I ask of all of my guests and some of these you've either hinted at or alluded to and and feel free to to be as as brief or as wordy as you like on any of these so we Having one of the things I speak to people about all the time are are mentors, and you've kind of said, uh, you know, I, I don't really know how to describe mentors because I've cut my own path and and done something different. But who are the people that influenced your approach to helping investors manage their clients? Well, they're mostly people I've read rather than people that I interacted with. Personally. Personally. So then let me ask you that same question differently. What are some of your favorite books on investing behavior and related subjects? And I'll put up a list for everybody. Fortunately for me, as far as I know, there is no other book about investor behavior, managing investor behavior than mine. But the, you know, the, the two big books that philosophically were important to me, um, I mean of critical importance to me. Critical. Yeah. Uh, are uh, Hayek's uh, The Road to Serfdom, Serfdom. Mm-hmm. and, of course, Closer to Home, um, Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, ah, which okay. I regard as definitive. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and it just gets better, by the way. The the Each... Um, it's on the fourth or fifth edition now. Yeah, it's been and, around for and quite it a while. just gets better. 
And before people send me emails saying, why don't you get Jeremy Siegel on? The answer is he will be on. I just have to wait for him to come to New York sure. from Philly. Yeah. Um, Always worth listening to, but what, much more worth reading. What I find fascinating about Siegel, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, him and Bob Schiller of Yale, so Siegel's at Wharton, Schiller's at Yale, they're longstanding friends and colleagues. Their families vacation together. They know each other. The two of them could not be any more different as as personalities. Yes. And yet they're they're fast friends. So stocks for the long run, road to serfdom. Anything else leap out as significant or seminal or not on the subject of economics or investing. So let me ask you about economics, because you you remind me a little bit of Larry Swedrow, who says he doesn't care about earnings report or economics reports. He just wants his clients invested for the long run. How important are are the economic data points of the day, week, and month? There are no importance to the long-term investor at all. They can only be distractions. They're only distractions. So that, that makes me wonder why Hayek, as opposed to Burton Malkiel or Graham and Dodd or something along those no, lines. Hayek's much further upstream uh, at, mm-hmm. a, at a theory of how economics works. Mm-hmm. This is not about data points. This at is all. not about it. No, no. This is about broad philosophy. The philosophy um, of free markets, yeah. government involvement, et cetera, et cetera. All of the above. That that's um you've you've alluded to that. You've quoted Hayek in some of your newsletters, but I didn't know how how seminal and how significant that was. It was actually a really critical. I'm um, a. A Queens Irish Catholic from a, a you know a family of Roosevelt Democrats, and mm-hmm. in my turn, I was a Kennedy Democrat. Mm-hmm. And I got to Columbia and was trying to finish at night when the 1968 riots broke out. Mm-hmm. And I was coming from the office every day in a suit which I had paid for, and I had paid for my tuition, and Columbia let the hooligans take over the campus. Mm-hmm. And I looked around and said, I don't know if I'm a liberal anymore. <laughs> That's and, the old joke is a conservative is a liberal who was mugged. Yes. And is that is I, that was that your experience? Yeah, actually it was. I mean, it's anecdotal, but it's true. It, it sounds like something one is looking for retrospectively, but I'm not. It's 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 the I, I walked that was off the, the dividing campus. line. I walked off the campus in 1968 and I've never been back. Really? Yeah. And that's why, uh, to quote Bluto, um, seven years of college down the drain. Wasted, down the drain. And I, so, you know, then then I started looking around for an, another way to process reality and and basically found it in Hayek. And then, you know, in the Reagan revolution, I mean, the the, the great mystery of of American life in my lifetime, the great surprise to me is that that we have to go back now and fight the Reagan revolution again because I thought that it would have been proven. Isn't the nature of politics and sure. econ- economics for that matter, the story of the pendulum, the pendulum swinging from this cycle, hey look, great society, 
hey, look, big tax cuts and, and reduction of regulation. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, up, now we're re-regulating. Hey, look, now we're deregulating. Appa- Isn't it every 40 it is. years? Yeah. It's, it's, it you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I grew up at J, people are always surprised when I say this. So you're, you have a couple of years on me, but not that many. I grew up a Jacob Javits Republican in Nassau County, uh-huh. Long Island, and that sort of flavor of Republicanism, which was small government, balanced budgets, low taxes, but no overseas involvement, right? Because we learned from Vietnam, and no government uh, intervention in the bedroom, because you know mm-hmm. that's private, and the government has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I've watched each of those things over. I'm fifty four. I've watched each, or I will be shortly, each of those things swing back and forth over that half century, and it's in it's in vogue, it's out of vogue. This is in vogue, this is out of vogue. Uh, yes, yeah, sadly, all of that is true, and it's just that I'm taking it badly. Is, well, but you, you know that the pendulum is going to eventually swing back yes, from I... one extreme to another, and it's why I always mock my politically active hedge fund buddies Mm -hmm. who seem to think that the occupant of the White House is going to be the final determinant of their portfolio. In a presentation I give, I have these two slides. I love to show this. It angers everybody. Anytime you could get everybody angry, you're on to something. So the first slide shows 2001 George Bush tax cuts. And my Democratic buddies all say, giant tax cuts, going to blow up the deficit. It's not going to do anything for the economy. Get out of stocks. And then over the ensuing six years, the market goes up 94%. Fast forward to March 09. Now it's my Republican buddies. And they're saying, this Obama guy is a Kenyan Muslim socialist. Mm -hmm. Get out of the markets. And now over the next seven years, the markets are up 200%. It almost makes no difference who's in there. If you're making your decisions based on the politics to get out of the markets, you're asking for an underperforming portfolio. You're asking for a disaster because there's no correlation between the economy and the markets over any but the very, very longest term. And what I will say is I've never seen two economies mm-hmm. like I see two economies now. You, you the, the meaning, pro- meaning, Meaning the private economy has basically walled itself off mm-hmm. from... The corporate economy has basically walled itself off from the the political or the, the the what I would call the collectivist redistributionist impulse. You mm-hmm. you in in the crash. I mean the the one of the great things, one of the many great things that came out of the crash for me was the reliquification of corporate America, paying down debt accumulating gigantic amounts of cash and not letting go of it. Have have corporate America's balance sheets ever been healthier than they, they are today? They can't have been, but certainly not in my lifetime. Right? It's it's amazing. And I say that to people and they look at me like I have two heads. You, you have the cleanest balance sheets, the least amount of short-term high-priced debt, and the most amount of manageable debt relative to equity and cash on hand. And you've also got excess reserves in the banking system like you've never seen before and will never see again. You, we just implemented the Volcker rule, which now says, hey, listen, you could you could be a hedge fund if you want. You just can't be taxpayer insured. 
the a lot of the rules that were undone, uh, Commodity Futures Modernization Act, Glass-Steagall repeal, a lot of those have slowly been put back into place. Uh, so the fear that we're setting up for an imminent crash and everything is going to go back to the Stone Age really seems to be fairly un- irrational and not guided by any sort of, of rationality or fact. I think that it's a basic inbred catastrophism. People, to look at corporate America today, the cash positions, the debt positions, the the uh, uh, just almost anything you want to look at, uh, PEs no more than slightly above the 25-year averages. Full, fully valued, maybe a touch above, 16 PE, not 15. Maybe, it, maybe, yeah. That, that's the most I would give you, 16 versus 15. And in the next breath, I would say, what the hell do you expect in a in a 1% money right. market? There's no competition there, from yeah, bonds yeah. and there's... Um, so so, so where, do you, you know, where, where do you get a catastrophist worldview out of that? I, I just, call that the recency effect. We just live through totally, it. And then totally. uh, we, this just happened. So my muscle memory is I'm ignoring the, the huge run-up since 2009 because I'm so scarred by what happened in 07 and 08. Which tells you how early we are in this bull market. Which, again, I say that to people and they look at me like I have two heads. I, when they I, stop looking at you like you have two heads, let me know because then it's getting late. Okay. It's, that's a validation. All of the looking when, – when, when we say things like that mm-hmm. and people look at us like we have two heads, that's the best news we got today. You know, we talked about noise and distraction before. I had a really interesting conversation. So for those of you who are listening, uh, a friend, Ben Carlson, is in the engineer's booth. You may know him from A Wealth of Common Sense. is a blog and a book he writes. And we were talking on the way here about, you know, 10 years ago, pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, during the dot-com collapse in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the same people who were saying dumb stuff that we now read on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere, we didn't have access to. Some of the really ridiculous, and I I won't mention any names, but some of the stuff that's just absurd and ridiculous and insane, you would hear someone would say something at a cocktail party or a barbecue, and you'd roll your eyes, walk away, and say, God, this guy must be losing so much money. He can't get out of his own way. I don't even want to be infected by him. I don't want to hear him. Now, that's my tweet stream. Now, that's what I see on LinkedIn and Facebook and and online and, and in various uh, media outlets. You can't escape it today, long whereas you it, used to be able to walk away from it. Long may it wave. Because that basically tells yeah. you there's a lot more oh, upside. Yeah. If you saw, I mean, you if you saw, of course you saw uh, July 8th, where... Uh, Greece was circling oh, the sure. toilet. Um, China? China blew up. And amid all this worldwide chaos, for reasons they couldn't begin to explain, the New York Stock Exchange shut down for four hours. There was Soft nothing liquids. nothing on TV that day but that. It was the Titanic and Pearl Harbor and... And the Twin Towers, it was every disaster in history. It was, it was the Black Plague. I mean, I haven't seen figures for 
you know, mutual fund and ETF withdrawals, but I imagine they spiked. Sure. Like they have rarely done a one-day spike in our time. And my son actually is in the real estate business in, in um, Brooklyn Heights, and he emailed me and he said, am I supposed to be taking this seriously? <laughs> And I said, no, of course not. What, why? And why he, would you take this Yeah, seriously? and he said, because the, everyone in my office is crowded around the TV set. The, the, the phones are not being answered. Everybody's watching this like the Hindenburg. And okay. I said, you know, I, thank you so much for telling me this because it tells me how early we are still, how early we are in this bull market. I don't think we have any idea candidly, how early we this, still This are. could be the third or fourth inning. People talking about it like it's the 11th, yeah. like yeah. it's the 11th thing. My, by the way, my favorite data point about Greece is it has the GDP of Alabama. Sounds about right. That, that, I, I heard Houston, but I guess it's the same difference. Uh, yeah, no, Houston is a yeah. decent, big, yeah. decent sized city. I know I only have you for a few more minutes. Yeah. So let me get to my, my last few favorite questions before we put you uh, on a plane. Okay. Um, so you talked about Hayek and Siegel. What other investors might have impacted your, your thinking? Not authors, but investors. Well, Buffett, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so wait, you have a thing for value and smart long-term thinking? Is that, uh, yes, is that what you're suggesting? Those, those are among my many biases. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, the, the relentless bullishness on the American economy, the realization, you know, which is so characteristic of him, and also just the plain down-to-earth counter-cyclicality of him, the, the opportunism in, in terrible markets. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the whole our favorite holding period is forever thing, I, I find so attractive refreshing even yeah Do, uh, don't you remember in the late 90s he's a dinosaur he's done yes absolutely that... when, and 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 i i remember also although i was not there his annual meeting in either 1999 it must have been in 1999 mm -hmm. where people were getting up and begging him to start a separate tech fund they accepted <laughs> his saying that he can't do tech, that he right. doesn't understand it, right. doesn't and in make the sense. next breath begging him to to start a tech fund, and and you know him saying this is not going to happen. It's lights out here, right? Um, so, what are some of the most significant changes that you see that's impacted the industry since you joined it? The financial services industry, yes. Well, the rise of women. Certainly mm -hmm. is. I mean, since that's fascinating, uh, is the single most um, important and positive development in you. You have to be familiar with the studies and data that essentially says women tend to outperform men. They they don't suffer from testosterone poisoning or many of the same um, bravado that men suffer from, and it ends up helping them do better in their portfolio management. I'm not familiar with any studies, but it's intuitive. And the other thing is from the financial stand financial planning standpoint, women relate to people and their and their 
hopes and their fears and their family concerns, I think, somewhat better, if not much better, than than men advisors tend to do. The man will focus on the portfolio and the woman will will focus on the family first, and the woman's always right. So, you know, just the release of of all of that energy and and empathy and brain power. Uh, you know, it, you you in 1967, you walked into Harry's at Hanover Square. All all dudes. No, there wasn't a woman in the place. There well, weren't even waitresses. You, you know what I'm saying? Sure. It, it's just and and you know to turn around now and and see the way it is. I mean, it, it, I can't imagine even technology has to take, in my mind, uh, second place to Really? That, to that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I could tell you from personal experience, trying to book women guests, the this industry still remains tremendously male-dominated. Yes. And we've had huge, wonderful guests, Sheila Bear and Lizanne Saunders, and last uh -huh. week was Dambisa Moyo, and we've had Michelle Myers from, from Merrill Lynch, but you look around and you try and book high-profile female guests to come in and, and speak. It's still a tremendously male-dominated business. I would love, for the reasons you described, to hire a female CFP for our office. We put out, the last time we advertised, and it was on LinkedIn, we advertised for wanted certified financial planner, Competitive salary, 401k, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. We got over 100 responses, not one female. It's amazing how skewed the industry remains. Well. But it's changing and it's getting a little yeah, bit better. It's, but it, it's my frame of reference. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, well, when you started, yeah. so you have a few years I've been doing this. You've been doing this, what, 40? I am in my 49th year. Coming up on 50 years. So you got me by... Just a couple of decades. <laughs> I've watched it start to change, yeah. but it's been very slow and it's been been modest. When I began, most of the women were working in the back office, True. and they started coming out either onto the sales desk. Right now, when you look at investment banking and research, there's many, many women in, in the research division. That seems to be the, the area that opens up at most aggressively and first. But when you look uh, on the planning side, there, there are still a disproportionate number of men, and it seems to be changing really slowly. No argument. It's a, that's fascinating. You're the first person who's used that example as, as um, one of the things you've noticed changing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, so now you mentioned that as a past shift. What's the next major shift you see coming? I don't, my mind doesn't work like that. You're not looking forward in terms of what might happen. You're looking at what actually I mostly is don't think about the industry. Really? Yeah. You're thinking about the client base? The, my, my client, the advisor, and his clients, the, the Americans. Do, do I even need to ask you about the advantages of the fiduciary standard, or is that just a no-brainer? Well, I think, I don't think it's a no-brainer depending on how you you define the fiduciary standard. I, I, I don't know that. First of all, we're all supposed to be have been acting as acting like fiduciaries mm -hmm. all along in, in the sense of what you and I know to be the fiduciary standard, which is mm -hmm. that you that you 
you do what a, a, a reasonable person would do and you, you put your client's interest ahead of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, a federally mandated fiduciary standard can't possibly be that clean or that sane. Mm-hmm. At some, if we get deep into a federally mandated regulatory fiduciary standard, you're going to get them saying things like, you you have to provide the lowest cost product, or you have to provide the lowest cost. Um, and sometimes it's not just the dollars and cents. It's got nothing to do with the fiduciary standard. Mm-hmm. Where Where is it written, the lowest cost product is the best for the client, or the lowest cost advice is the best for the client? I The only thing that bothers me about the impending fiduciary standard, if indeed it is impending, is the tendency of a nanny state, a a really viciously anti-capital, anti-wealthy people, anti-advisor state, mm-hmm. which is the which is the state that we live in today, um, from defining fiduciary in a way that none of us have ever heard of before. That That's a valid criticism. When I look at fiduciary, I'm looking at it from the other side of the coin. Of course. Which is suitability yep. is such a silly standard. Don't sell grandma Facebook IPOs. That something that moves people towards, we all know that putting the client's interest first is the right thing to do. Yep. But when the vast majority of people in the industry don't have that standard, it creates all sorts of problems. And my concern is who's going to take care of these people if they don't have money saved for retirement or they've given up too much to high-priced advice. And I don't mean 1%. I mean suitability Mm. advice. Mm. They're not going to be left with enough money to retire on. Um, And I fear that ultimately it's going to come out of the taxpayer's uh, pocket it, it left well I don't think advice. that's I, I think that's a reasonable concern but I don't think that the presence or absence of the fiduciary standard has anything to do with it human nature has everything to of do course. with it, it, it uh, one half of Americans 65 and over when the sun came up this morning were living a hundred percent on social security and you ain't going to fix that with a fiduciary standard you ain't going to fix that with anything regulatory that's that's human nature and are those as you know social security tanks and and medicaid tanks are the are the taxpayers going to end up um carrying a lot of that water sure they are and that's and 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 by the way that will be back to your point about the the pendulum that will be a thing that sends this the 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 pendulum to the opposite sure. extreme, and it'll go sure. careening. All right, so I know I only have you for the five more minutes. Let me get to the last two questions. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting out their career today, whether it's in finance or elsewhere? Well, no, it's that's two different questions. A, a, a civilian millennial, mm-hmm. I would say save 10% of your... Uh, pre-tax earnings, ten percent in equity, in equities, and open your statement when you're seventy-one years old. So just don't even open. <laughs> yeah. Give it fifty years, and uh, yeah. you'll do okay. Yeah. 
And now the second half of the question, what advice would you give to someone going into finance right out of school today? When again, it depends on what you mean by finance. If you if you mean what what my guys do, which sure. is personal financial mm-hmm. advice, I I would say be, because the the this profession has aged terribly. It's almost like the 1930s and 40s, where no young people came into the business after the thermonuclear 1929 crash. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and the Great Depression. Depression. Mm-hmm. So what you ended up with in the 1950s and, and early 1960s was a very old profession. And, you're and that's repeating up, today. Yes, it is repeating today. And what I would say to somebody who, had the, who was smart enough to come into the business now, when it's deeply unfashionable to come into the business, uh, or at least I hope it still is, is go apprentice yourself to somebody, you know, 60 years old, somebody who's seen all the wars, who has fought all the wars, and just sit at his feet for 10 years. And A, you'll learn everything that that there is to learn, and B, you'll inherit the business on some, some basis or other. This has come up several times in our office in that what what is your succession plan? Well, it's, my name's on the door, but my partner's 15 years younger than me, and... The next guy in line is five years younger than him, and everybody's capable of stepping into these roles. You don't really think about that under normal circumstances, but it's something that's significant because people want to know, hey, if you are hit by a bus, is the firm going to continue? I think that's going to be an ongoing issue for these guys who don't have a junior at their feet who could pick up the ball and run with it. It's, very... al- it's already becoming a huge issue. That, that, that's amazing. Last question, because I know we got to get you out to an airport. What do you know today that you wish you knew, and I'm going to change the question, 49 years ago when you began in this industry? Well, not in a minute and a half. I mean, the, the short answer is everything. You could take the next, next plane. The, <laughs> the, the short answer is everything. But the long answer is the rationality of capital and the efficiency of markets in the long run. If you, it, 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 what I wish I had known as a beardless stock picker in a, in a performance-mad age was that you didn't have to be a hero. I love that sentence. What I wish I knew as a beardless stock picker in a performance-mad age. Which is exactly what I was. You did not have to be a hero. No. How long did it take you to figure out that you were on the wrong path? Well, it was a series of epiphanies, and it took the, 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 total, the total time was 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so that means for 30, 35 years, you've been preaching pretty much the been, same story yeah, I've been squared away in in books and newsletters and appearances and conferences and all sorts of other um, events you're shaping a big swath of the investor community who in turn are helping the investing public achieve long-term success I hope so well Nick I, I can't thank you enough for your um, I can't thank you enough for your time and and being so willing to sit here and, and answer my silly questions. It was great fun. It, it's been a pleasure. And I know 
For those of you who are still with us at the end, this is a little inside baseball if you're an investor, but I hope you learned something fascinating about how money is managed and how the business of asset management progresses. And for people who want to find more of your stuff, nickmurray.com. And then nickmurraynewsletters.com. Don't even bother. Nickmurray.com. Nickmurray.com. Thank you. Um, Mike Batnick is our head of research. Charlie Vollmer is uh, our producer. And Mark Zanascalci is our engineer. Uh, Be sure and check out all our other interviews. You can look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and see the other 52 interviews. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.